Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show on this bank holiday weekend and I know we're tending to forget it is a bank holiday weekend. I feel it'll be over by the time we've settled into it. I think tomorrow evening we'll suddenly start getting a bank holiday feeling and it'll be gone. But anyway, next year, next year I feel we'll be ready and we'll do better. Anyway, uh, let's have a look at the front pages of the papers. The Sunday Times, aid for Ukraine refugees could be tapered off. And if you take that in conjunction with that story also in the Business Post and also in conjunction with what Simon Harris was saying last night, it does seem like the government are uh, sending certain signals um, around that issue. The Business Post, Cancer Society astonished at move to delay law banning insurer penalties. Um, so basically, uh, the Cancer Society are saying that people who have had cancer in the past are having difficulty getting things like life insurance and the insurers are clutching their pearls appalled by this and saying there's no such, uh, no such thing. Um, the Sunday Independent uh, has the President, Michael D. Higgins, warns on sowing hate over refugees in an interview with the Sunday Independent. Um, the Mail on Sunday who had... The nursing home charges story, of course, last week um, have a story, Veradkar's plan to cut hep C uh, payments. And it should be said that that, that was a, a, a memo. It was discussed. It did not go ahead, in fairness. Um, the Sunday World has a story about a gangland figure charged with uh, money laundering. And The Sun has a story about potential further charges in the Regency Hotel murder case. All right, to discuss uh, a lot of that and more, our panel this morning is Orla Ryan, who's a news correspondent with the Journal.ie, John Halligan, who's a former independent TD for Waterford and a former Minister of State, and Professor Neve Horrigan is a sociologist and Vice President of Academic Affairs at Mary Immaculate College, and Cormac Lucy is a chartered accountant and a columnist with the Sunday Times. Good morning, everyone. Morning. 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 John Halligan, you take an interest in uh, unidentified flying objects uh, and indeed in, and, and indeed in totalitarian ish regimes as well. So the I was thinking of yesterday. I ended up sitting in front of CNN looking at a visual of a, a blurry dot in the sky for hours while they discussed yeah. what but they were doing. Blue, what, was, what, what were your thoughts it on was the balloon? the size of three double-decker buses. Fantastic size of them. People are, are at a loss as to why they shot down. They enjoyed the spectacle of balloons flying over America. I don't really know. It's, it's a strange one in the sense that... Um, uh, with the high technology that they have today, I mean, obviously, satellite imaging is every, everything. The Americans have been doing that up and down the coast of both Taiwan and China over the last 20 years, and the Chinese are doing it as well, and so are the Russians. So you would wonder why it would require something that would be so visual and obvious to there the Americans. There is speculation in the Sunday <laughs> Times that they flew it so low deliberately because they wanted it I, to be because apparently apparently though I was reading that th- those balloons when flying at their actual height can be less um, less spotable on radar mm. than other forms well, of well, aircraft took, apparently. It, uh, the funny thing about that is the Americans are saying that they were aware of the balloon uh, when it entered American airspace but some Aviators are saying that's not the case. They weren't aware of it because it was over 100,000 feet. And some of the technology the Americans have to monitor satellites go above our atmospheres, but it misses stuff at the edge of the atmosphere. So it took, probably it. it took people with their iPhones to It was yeah. some kind of a civilian ship where it was first yeah, spotted. Yeah. And you can see that that would be the start of some amazing movie where you're sitting yeah. on your deck chair with your tequila sunrise it, and some balloon yeah. goes past. Yeah. But the interesting thing for me about it is that it would appear on both sides that there's obviously lots of spying going on between the yeah. US and China. But what's interesting about this is the, the publicness of it. A, yeah, the publicness yeah. of the Chinese flying this balloon this low and then the Americans willing to come out and say we're taking this down and we're not happy about it and I suppose because so much of the focus has been on Russia uh, and the Ukraine I, I think we've, we've kind of forgotten about all the history of, of difficulty I with China that went before that I heard someone say yesterday Russia is the weather China is the climate yeah. well, but if, China but if it, did say it was for uh, weather research and that it had flown off course yeah. but it's rather unfortunate or convenient that it ended up over a site that had US missiles in it at one point so you can look at it Either way, maybe it did fly off course, but why was it over that particular but, facility? But the, Ch- the Chinese have a history of kind of um, uh, 
arrogantly portraying their views on different issues and doing it visually as well. And they do that, even though, like, people are saying, why would they do that when uh, Blinker was on his way to talk to the Chinese? They do that all of the time. It's like this, they come out and say, we will eventually invade Taiwan. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we'll invade Taiwan and not do it. As as the the youngest person here, I think maybe we're all a bit jaded and kind of remembered tail ends of Cold Wars and various things. Were you alarmed by this at all? Uh, not really, to be no, honest. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To be honest about it, as as John rightly pointed out, this stuff kind of happens all the time. Yes, this is more visual and dramatic and yeah. there's images being projected all over the news this morning, but it kind of seems like a tit-for-tat thing that, that's quite common between the US and China. So not yeah. overly worried, obviously, as as John said, you know, Anthony and it's interesting just with, yeah. the young pe- with the young people yeah, and yeah. the anxiety but, and everything. But, you know, to to a degree, but I, yeah, I think yeah. we're just so used to bad news and all they the time and worrying news. It's like, oh, there's another disagreement between China and the US yeah, Grant yeah. it just it feels like one more thing on top of everything else so not overly worried about this but you know it's not okay but not overly either. worried for a bad reason because you just assume that everything because you just is assume the world is ending anyway the so okay. it's just, here's <laughs> another terrible <laughs> thing that's happening well, no, well, in fact, in fact it's a good thing Cormac yeah because if, if uh, what China did and what America did remained complete secrets to the others that would be a far worse situation to have yeah, right. where, where fears and paranoia could take hold and uh, some of the the arms control treaties that they had back in the yeah, old yeah. days of the Cold War, they specifically featured mutual inspection uh, opportunities and rights specifically to prevent uh, things being done behind the other side's back. So, do, so a transparency, yeah. the transparent balloon. But it's, no. good to, it's good to know that the talks are not cancelled or postponed by America. That means that but in a few months' know. time they'll he be out know, there again. Yeah. 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 Now, as it happens, security, security analyst Declan Power is on the line. Good morning, Declan. Morning, Brendan. How are you? Fine. Now, uh, you, you're here to talk about uh, other matters that we'll come to in a minute. But just uh, seeing as I have you now, and this is kind of your area too, was it not a bad look for the Americans that they stood slack-jawed looking at the balloon for four days before they did anything? They were like medieval peasants or something looking up at the sky. <laughs> kind of an optic of powerlessness, basically, when the Chinese floated kind of peacefully above well, them. I think it all depends on perspective. I think um, John spoke earlier there and made a very valid point about uh, Chinese posturing about things and I think depending on your point of view if you're uh, looking at things from the American perspective if you react too quickly you're kind of giving power to the Chinese and maybe that's what they wanted to see an overly defensive posture and reaction by the Americans which would have been frankly would have been preposterous this wasn't a direct threat the discussion about whether it should be shot down or not they eventually did uh, it appears shoot, uh, shoot it down uh, but in a, in a controlled way oversee uh, where they were able to uh, to collect the debris and, uh, and analyse it. But I think, um, you know, as a, a democratic state has to be seen to not be so defensive uh, in, in these regards to something that isn't a direct threat upon their uh, their physical security. Uh, otherwise, it, it lessens their... Um, their confidence okay. and the confidence that project to their people. So, I think, so, I think so they, they, so they were like out cooling the Chinese by just saying, yeah, there's a balloon, fine, we're not panicking here. We'll monitor it. It's not okay. a direct threat. And the other thing is, you're looking, you look at the population there, look at the misinformation and the damage it did during the pandemic. If they had overreacted too quickly, God knows what levels of uh, nonsense would have pervaded through uh, the online world uh, with regards to that. So everything okay. has to be looked at in that through that prism. Mm-hmm. These days. Okay, and Declan, you're going to stay with us for further discussions, um, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that. Just on a on a related matter, then, um, uh, Cormac, you wanted to talk about it's in the Sunday Independent, and it's mentioned in other papers. It's been on the news. Second day of drone disruption at Dublin Airport. Wayne O'Connor's reporting. Yeah, this is a similar story in that you've got a body up in the air, outside state control, potentially interfering. The interference in Ireland is much greater than a balloon ambling its way across the continental United States. And flights coming into Dublin Airport have had to divert to, to Shannon and other places uh, because there, there have been drones flying around in their flight paths. Uh, and, and I guess I'd be interested in just asking Declan, what capacity does, does the state have to deal with drones like that, you know, what would what would be done if there was an EU summit mm. taking place in Dublin Castle, and we had say five drones suddenly arriving into the airspace over Dublin Castle? Okay, so De- Declan, uh, this is again not what we brought you on for, but go on anyway, seeing as you're here. 
Sure. Well, I mean, I think the the response, <clears throat> excuse me, the responses are, are twofold. If there is legislation uh, in place, as I understand it, the to deal with the regulate drones. So from the point of view of um, being able to ascertain where they're coming from and bring in a prosecution would be the normal way to pursue this. But if there was, a, as Cormac has alluded to there, a conference going on and you had a security operation in place, then there would be countermeasures uh, to ensure that anything that came into a cordoned, a sanitised airspace would be taken down. The problem with drones is it depends on their size. And even though uh, we do have... Um, uh, anti-aircraft defences. Uh, the, the size of drones and if they're weaponized in some shape or form, they're trickier to deal with. And uh, I think the simple answer is nobody's quite too sure. In theory, there are things in place. There, are, uh, there is a notional idea that this would happen. But in practice, I don't think it's ever been fully wargamed for. And I think it's, uh, you know, the, the, the key problem with regards to security responses in this day and age are the things that are maybe uh, unintended, unexpected and simplistic. And, yeah. you know, anybody can buy a drone now. And uh, without too much effort, uh, you can see how it can disrupt uh, day-to-day business, day-to-day yeah, you see, Niamh, this is it. With your sociologist hat on now, I mean, I was looking at the news and I was thinking, if I was a headbanger with a drone yeah. now, I would have been thinking, there's a great idea. So, and so like, this kind falls of very clearly within really impunity, like. in, into the category of, of antisocial behaviour in terms of the dynamics that are going on. So if you're somebody with a drone, this is actually the second, I suppose, tract of antisocial behaviour they've had in Dublin Airport because previously they had a scenario where people were flashing lasers into the eyes of pilots. Now, this is something that actually has happened in LA. It's happened in Heathrow. It's it's one of these... So we're very vulnerable to just yes, random this, this happens if you will. Airports in the last... 10 years seem to be a magnet for antisocial behaviour and in terms of understanding the dynamic of it, it almost goes back to what Declan was saying earlier. At some level, the more the state reacts to it, the more of a buzz, because antisocial behaviour at the end of the day is all about a buzz, um, and the more of a buzz people get out of it. The problem is that aircraft and flight are so vulnerable, pilots are so vulnerable, people on in the air are so vulnerable. There, my understanding is that there is a, some a kind of a falling between the stools here on antisocial behaviour around the airport because there's a question of, because it's linked to flights itself, whether it's a matter for the Gardaí or the airport police. Some of our, you know, it, it can be quite difficult actually to tackle antisocial behaviour because it's often unclear what elements of it are criminal and that has emerged in lots of other contexts as well. So the, the first place to start in policing it is an intelligence-led approach which focuses on social media and then works back from there. There are technologies that certainly with the lasers they can use to actually track back and see where they're coming from as I yeah. presume they can do with the drones. But they're expensive and as Declan says they require an operation. Yeah. In France, in, yeah, in France they shoot them down but what they are doing is developing technology that if you buy a drone there's a, an implant in the door a, a piece of technology in the the drone that monitors where the dr- drone sure, it's flies. it's a no-brainer, of yeah. course. Like Th- you can't, you, you do, can't yeah. have everybody anonymously no. owning an aircraft. No, no you could like, That could kill hundreds of people or shut down an airport. But sure, it's like if you buy a rifle, you ha- it's 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 monitored. You have to have it uh, checked and so on. So what they're doing in France and I hear they're doing it in Finland is you buy a drone. This implant is placed into the drone. If a drone is flown over an airport, they go to the area. We say it is not, and they check the drones and not. They say your drone was over. A airport there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way yeah. to do Makes it. Makes sense. Absolute sense, yeah. Um, okay, we'll move on to, I suppose, the real news anyway. Um, Orla, page one of the Sunday Times there. Uh, tell us what that story is about the uh, aid for Ukrainian refugees being tapered off. Yeah, so it's a story by Aoife Moore, John Mooney, Patrick O'Donoghue and Bo Donnelly on the front of the Times. Um, basically, the government are looking into whether or not they need to t- place a time limit on how long support will be offered to UK- Ukrainian refugees. Um, Simon Harris, the Justice Minister, has confirmed that they're looking into it. Um, basically, every EU country has to offer some form of social welf- welfare payments or protection to Ukrainian refugees as they come in, but that varies really widely depending on where you are in the EU. Ireland is one of the most you know, generous approaches. It's Ireland, Belgium and Germany. They offer full social welfare benefits to refugees coming in akin to and myself in- or yourself if we needed them. Well it currently so indefinitely, far. so yeah. they're basically looking at whether they need to place a time limit on it. In other countries, maybe when Ukrainians come in, they get a one-off payment or they get support for three months or six months or a year or something like that. Like, like no, I presume the figures that were given out here are f- selective enough, but 
Poland, which we've been lauding for their incredibly generous response, according mm. to those stories, Poland gives a 63 euro one-off payment for people to get necessities and clothes. It, and, it's, and that, it, that is very low. And obviously they've had to deal with, you know, the, among the largest number of people coming in. So you can understand they might not necessarily be able to afford something more generous. I don't think we need to go down that route of having it be so low, but they are currently looking into whether or not they need to, to taper it off. They've kind of set aside two billion this year in terms of paying for accommodation and social welfare, you know, payments for Ukrainians coming in the majority of that will be on accommodation and we all know there's a massive shortage there right now but they're looking at yeah you know will it be indefinite will it be for a few months will it be for a year does it depend on circumstances so basically they're looking at what to do now in the next few months Cormac you picked this as well is is the government starting to think that this situation as is is unsustainable I think it is I think it's a small change what's in today's papers uh, but any change on a question as politically uh, explosive as this is a big change and I thought it was interesting that on the front page of the Sunday Independent they, they did an extensive poll but in one of the questions they asked has Ireland taken in too many refugees in the past year and 56% said yes 30% said no Yeah, of the people in that poll and that poll was conducted last Thursday and Friday February 2 and 3 the sample size was 1,212 people the margin of error is 2.9% so that's a it's a particular snapshot of a particular bunch of people but the, the, that is what it suggests those people and, and I think the issue is being uh severely aggravated by domestic failures to provide services to Irish citizens in you know, housing, health and education. Uh, the other thing, I, I was writing an article about the housing market uh, a few months ago and in the last 10 years or so, Ireland's population has grown by 10%, the EU's by about 1%. So, so one of the reasons we have creaking services in so many areas is that we have had a massive growth in our population. And most of that is a consequence of economic growth. It's, it's a consequence of people coming here not to seek refuge, but, to, but just to fill work vacancies. Uh, but our, our state apparatus has been frighteningly slow in, in reacting to that. OK, Neve, you picked this story too. That population thing is a bulge, as I understand it, is it? It's, it's, it's not going to keep going up like that forever, am I right? Well, there's, there's a, it is. I mean, the birth, birth rate is slowing down. But, I mean, population is based on birth rate, death rate, how many people are leaving and how many people are arriving. That's how you're... So, all of those factors, the, the birth rate is decreasing, but all of those factors can play. And I am actually one of the people I personally do think we need a rethink on this and I'll explain why. Okay. Um, so uh, as, a, as a sociologist who works I, I you know I, I'm friends with lots of people who work in this space who are engaging every day with IPASS IPASS in fairness couldn't IPASS are the organisation who manage who are tasked by the state with managing ref, refugees and specifically the Ukraine issue. IPASS has been in crisis mode for 12 months. It's it's like it's it, it's like this crisis happened yesterday. Now, they were unprepared for what happened. They couldn't have been prepared. There is too much responsibility falling on the shoulders of too few people. That is not only at the level of IPASS, it's at the level of the civil servants. It's also at the level okay, of government. Before we broaden it out, to that story particularly, tapering off aid for Ukrainian refugees, is that going to be palatable? Is, is, is it uh, something we need to do? Okay, so... First of all, I think it's important to look at the figures, right? So at the moment, we have an increase, first of all. At the moment, we had about 77,000 refugees this time last year. We have 74,000 now, OK? 53,700 uh, of those are from Ukraine and around 20,000 are international protection applicants in terms of the figures I could drill down into yesterday, right? The, the thing about Ukrainian refugees or displaced, they're, they're technically temporarily displaced persons. And one of the differences that they have to other other categories of refugees is that they can work. So I think there and is... And they get full social welfare, child benefit. So, I, yes, exactly. They yeah. are entitled to all their entitlements. But I do think there is a case if you come from Ukraine and you're here and you settle in and you get a job and you're finding your feet and if you have accommodation, and that is the critical point, there is a case for tapering off benefits in that case. I do not think when we have that category of international protection applicants who are not allowed to work, 
you know, they have no option. They're going to starve. The, the big issue, though, here, Brendan, and it really comes back to what Cormac was saying. It's very interesting. There's an interview with um, just, Imer just, O'Neill. Okay, just before... One, one okay, more can point, we, No, right? we move on to yeah. all of that. Like, we yeah. broaden out the issue, but just this is the this is the fresh story on it today. So I just want to get John's yep. view on it. I think that we should be careful in this, that we've been taking in migrants, um, uh, uh, um, refugees, call them what you like, over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and sometimes there's been some controversy. Did somebody come from a, a country to, uh, uh, for, uh, because of their politics, they, the way they were being treated with their politics, their religion? Most migrants are economic migrants. Uh, however bad our economy is, they're coming from shit economies around the world. Stop. They're there's in, no they're, need they're, to they're, use they're, that But they're living, in, they're living in horror. I apologise for that. For okay, John and I apologise to you. Now, if you look at Ukraine, these people were forced out of their country. They had no option. It wasn't a question that, look, will we go and try and get a better quality of life in Ireland or, or Sweden or Germany? The vast majority, particularly past the Donbass, had no choice. Their houses were gone. Their, 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 their uh, quality of life was gone and destroyed. What we need to do is integrate. And what I mean by that is that if you come into the country, and most Ukrainians, by the way, have said it quite openly, that the end result, they want to go back. They want to go back to Ukraine. Some of them have good jobs, good quality jobs. And it, there's an inevitability about this. The war will end at some stage soon. Negotiation, Ukraine will be built up. And you will find that most of them will go back. In the meantime, what you do is you integrate them into Irish society like you would do with anybody else. If you don't have a Which job... Which we are doing yeah, quite, yeah, quite successfully. I agree with that. Like, we yeah. are. So why are we changing this? Let them get the social welfare payment. But you do what everybody else has to do. Social welfare will contact you and say, look, there's a job here. There's a job there. Do you want to take it? Would you like to... And I think most of them will say, yes, I want to work. You see, I, one problem I've noticed with people I've met is that a lot of them are women with children. And a lot of yes. them are, are yes. finding it difficult to... They, I, like one woman was telling me then, she suggested somebody, could I do half-time or something? And they were like, no, we need full-time employees. And another woman was saying to me that by the, the kids are in one place in school... She's somewhere else now living. Her work opportunities are somewhere else. She can't juggle it all. So, like, it is a lot of basically what we call single mothers or we used to call single mothers in this country. But if you take a lot, a lot from, we say, Nigeria and the Congo and places like that have come in over the last 20 years, the vast majority of those people are working now, doing part-time jobs are working. They're not on yeah. social welfare payments. And maybe I understand that there's a huge amount coming in from Ukraine, but I think we have to do... We have to give special dispensation to the people in okay. Ukraine or forced out of the country. Orly, you want to come back in there? Yeah, no, just on that. And if they are tapering off the payments, they said that will be in conjunction with trying to find people work. But as you pointed out, it could be that, you know, you get a job opportunity that maybe is an hour away. We already have so many Irish people who aren't able to afford or get childcare. So what do you do when you are someone who's come over, maybe doesn't have the language? You might have three or four kids. Um, they could be in different schools. It's, it's very complicated. So the idea of just saying, well, you know, go and get a job, it's not necessarily that easy. I think the majority of Ukrainians here, they do want to work and ultimately go back home. So it's not okay. going to be forever. OK, now, um, the background to this, and we'll come back to all, all that stuff. The, the background to this is that there has been a marked increase in anti-immigration protests in recent weeks. And I think some people feel that an, el an element of a kind of a heavier element coming into the whole thing. So and that is why security, security analyst Declan Power uh, is actually joining us this morning. So Declan, what's your read on how this is playing out in terms of these protests, in terms of the involvement of the far right and the and the, the development of the far right in, in attempting to get a foothold here? <clears throat> Thank you, Brandon. I think uh, ultimately what we're talking about here is a, a contest of narratives and the state narrative has not been attended to with enough um, stewardship and enough um, forward planning. Uh, some of all of your, pa your panellists there have made very valid points uh, about this and how it's been evolving. But the problem is that, that a lot of the information is not being communicated uh, in a strategic way into the communities that are at risk in this situation or that see themselves at risk. And so this is giving carte blanche to uh, various far-right ideologues, both in the online world and in the real world, to uh, misdirect people's uh, well-intentioned uh, ire that's directed at the government but uh, is now being directed at refugees. <clears throat> and it's the old saying, you know, if you leave a vacuum, somebody's going to fill it. And, that's and, and is misinformation uh, possibly... Um, more attractive than than information in this situation. 
Well, I think everybody is attracted to drama at some time, uh, you know, at some point. And uh, the, the dramatic option sometimes seems, um, you know, the, the more attractive option to want to accept or to believe in that you're being uh, done out of something that the you know the government is uh, trampling all over your rights, and then somebody, some <coughs> you know uh, slick toned. Uh, you know, uh, information meister comes along and tries to give you a, a scapegoat that's responsible for it and uh, a few simplistic answers yeah. and stirs up. You know, it's mobilising sentiment. It's it's a playbook that goes back to the 1930s when the brown shirts were on the rise in Germany. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're at that particular uh, level. But but are you suggesting is that the, is this escalating as far as you're seeing from like monitoring the security situation? <clears throat> It has escalated, but it's not as it's not as coordinated uh, as, as something that would lead to you know a terrorist campaign or or lead to concerted outbreaks of violence. That the the ideological groupings seeking to uh, benefit from this are not operating in a coordinated manner. But it is if it's left unchecked, it is going to be. Uh, ongoing and problematic for the government to be able to deal with the refugee issue. And I think the, the, one of the problems that arises here is that <clears throat> the government knew that, in fact, we're not at the numbers that the, the government were briefed on being likely to be the case uh, at the start of this war. Uh, I, I think, think I, in fairness, plan- I, everyone says that. In fairness, I think there was an element of magical thinking too that nobody really did believe those numbers. Like, they seemed enormous okay, yeah, at, at yeah, the time, yeah. like, in fairness. Well, well, also, I think, speaking of magical thinking, I think a lot of people had a magical belief that this war was going to be done and dusted in a couple of months. Yeah. And if history is taught us nothing, it's, you know, when people say it'll be over by Christmas, well, then believe the complete opposite. Um, but anybody who was looking at the, the components of this war and the, the, what it led to it and the way it was unfolding knew it wasn't going to be over anytime quickly. The, the, the one thing that surprised everybody was that uh, that Ukraine were going to be able to keep fighting as a state. Most people thought it would probably be an insurgency-type war, like what happened in Afghanistan in the 1980s to some extent. But we're here where we are now. There's another aspect to it as well. that We have to look at it not just in an Irish context, but in a pan-European context. Part of the solution has to come from there, because um, I think it was the Tanish uh, Michal Martin who mentioned about the weaponization of refugees. So that's, that's part of... Uh, the, 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 the Russian aggression approach, knowing that flooding Europe with refugees is going to yeah, put pressure yeah. on it. So how we respond to it has to be taken into account. But okay, Declan, one final is, question for you on this. Sure. I think it seems to some people that the state and the Gardaí are taking quite a hard line on this and that like when there's any suggestion of there being trouble at these protests, we see um, armed response waiting in the wings and that, uh, and then we, we hear the... the the Gardaí commissioner and so on saying we are monitoring this very hard behind the scenes as well. It feels like the state security apparatus is taking all of this very seriously indeed. Well, they have no choice but to take it seriously and optics matter in a situation like this. And during the pandemic, we saw saw minority groups uh, act in, in very violent ways. Uh, directly towards the Gardaí and, uh, you know, give the two fingers to the general state consensus. And there's another element to this that can't be forgotten about with regards to policing. There has to be a show of intent by the state to uphold law and order, not least for the people who are in a very vulnerable state, those refugees who are inside in buildings looking out at people who appear to be baying for their blood. And the least we can do is provide the policing on the ground to ensure that when they're in this state, the laws will be upheld. Okay, Declan Power Security Analyst, thank you very much for that. Niamh, no, you wanted to get into, uh, we have lots of, we picked lots of stories here and stuff, but what what, uh, in particular would you like to? Well, I suppose the first thing is, to go back to Declan's point, I agree. I, I think the first thing to deal with is the communications vacuum. And it's because the the whole crisis is falling on too few shoulders. That's the first reason. So it's yeah. really Roger O'Gorman, who in fairness, I think is doing his best, but it's simply not enough. You need much more senior. I, There's I would, a TD quoted in the Business Post today who says the local kind of um, far right or agitators know before TDs do at times. 
uh, what's happening with particular yeah, buildings. Yeah, this, this is the second issue. Because IPAS are still in crisis mode, one of the things we're hearing a lot, particularly from smaller communities, is because we wanted consultation. So in fairness, if you put a large number of refugees into a small village of, say, 500 people, and there's 200 refugees who've gone into an old convent or something, there are situations like that around the country. And it happens very quickly, or it feels to them like it's happened overnight. There was no consultation. In in a, in a society where we have created uh, an expectation of consultation through our planning processes and through lots of other things, one of the reasons there isn't that consultation is because IPAS are in such crisis mode. So they have 200 people on a bus or on a boat somewhere. They're scrabbling around trying to find places. And, you know, so, they're, they, so that communications piece is a product of that too. But I, I think, and this goes back to the point that Cormac made more than anything else, it is important. So you'll always have, as Declan mentioned there, you'll always have a core of the far right who are protesting. It's interesting to look at the links between this group and those who protested in terms of anti-vax and anti-mask and there are those links there. But one of the things that's really interesting in today's papers is an interview with Emer O'Neill and she talks about the more general rise in racism because of what's going on now and she said someone came up to her and said you know the Irish still need houses and it is important to drill into those underlying features like food, clothing yeah. and shelter are a fundamental need. Yeah. We are looking at a scenario where people who are already here are struggling to find housing. People who are already here and working or in social welfare are struggling to survive because of cost of living. McCormick, that it goes, is exacerbating it goes this. Back, it goes back to the, the nub of, of uh, what, what Declan was saying as well, which is that there are existing problems there and now here's someone to blame for them. Well, in a sense, that's not what Declan was saying. He was suggesting that this was a That this is what the far right are, are, are offering, though. They're saying that you have your existing problems and now blame the other for them. Well, having worked several years in the Department of Justice when Michael McDougall was minister, I'm a little bit nonplussed by this focus on the far right. Uh, what political party are we talking about? And where are the convicts? Where, where are the previous convictions f- that the far right have, have picked up in this campaign? And you know, Declan warned us against a simple narrative with scapegoats, but th- that is what the state is offering us right now. They have failed on the substantive questions of housing, childcare, and when... Yeah, and yeah, the in no way blaming the uh, immigrants for, for all of that. No, it's not. But, but the point is, uh, Irish citizens are deeply frustrated at the failure of the state to fix those problems. And then when you get uh, refugees hastily housed in their neighbourhood, they're ripe to be recruited for, for, okay. for protests. But they're hastily so, so arriving. Is there any other way to house them apart from hastily? Because what it, it, some people might say that whatever the government do, they're damned. If you put them in a tent, people are freaking out. If you put try to put them into people's neighbourhoods, people are, a certain amount of people are freaking out. There has been a huge welcome in general. But like, what, 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 are they damned whatever but, they do? Well, well, you're admitting the fact that this is a complex, difficult question. The government is is hiding, I think, behind this story that it, it's far-right agitation mm. coupled with some actual yes. problems. Rather than saying, actually, we've, we've a complex multi-crisis here, most of this lies at our feet and we have to get our act together. We have to improve our performance on housing, yeah. health, childcare. OK, I, th- I think in fairness that that narrative is, is generally accepted. Just before we move on, Orla, you wanted to make a point about uh, Cormac is asking who are these far right, where are they and everything. I mean, yes, we don't have a massive problem with the far right in Ireland, but they do exist. They are a very vocal minority. And I think we've seen a very clear escalation in the past week or two where we've seen people film, you know, alleged attacks on people because they, they're not speaking in English or things like that on the street. We've seen, you know, a call to call for people to bring guns and weapons to, to storming a Garda station in Finglas that didn't quite escalate in the way that we thought it might. But, you know, we're seeing all of these things online. And yes, they are a minority, but they're a very vocal minority yeah. and they are feeding into you know, valid concerns that people have but it is going to escalate and we've seen a number of attacks being filmed on social media in the last couple of weeks. It's very worrying and I think it is only a matter of time before someone gets seriously hurt. So while it's a minority it does exist and it's there. Yeah, and we have of course on social media this notion of virality mm. as well these yeah. days. That, like John, these things always start small. 
go back to history, they always Absolutely, start as yeah. this kind of rump and suddenly they grow very fast. And yeah. that was before social I, media. I, I agree with everything that Cormac said there. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with this narrative that the government kind of keep putting out. Now, and I think the okay, well, look, we've had that. We, no, okay, yeah, we've but, had that. But point, I just want so to talk the, about the, this, like, this, this, this so-called ideology of the far right. The far right do not ha- have an ideology. They're, they're, they're anti-state, this group of people. But this is very important to say that if you look at people in Ireland here, hundreds of thousands of people are disenfranchised, poor housing, poor health, uh, uh, poor quality of living, and they are being manipulated by individuals. Okay. And they see this as a, a, a method of venting their anger. Not everybody at the protest are far right. They wouldn't know what, many of them wouldn't know what an ideology. There was a young fellow holding a poster there last week of, of a Nazi thing, of, of the swastika. Like, yeah, you okay, know, crazy look, stuff. The, the, yeah, yeah, crazy stuff uh, it is. But it does bring us, I suppose, uh, Niamh, to uh, the point that it seems to underlie everything, really. Uh, a, housing, and B, the cost of living. And yeah. you, you picked out a few cost of living stories today. Um, okay, well, I so, suppose the context for this, Brenna, I have to say, was I got my own gas bill last week and I nearly fell down with the increase that was. There was a significant three-figure increase from this time last Mm -hmm. year. Now, I'm in the fortunate position that for me, I can just cut back on other discretionary spending to pay for that. But I would shudder to think what people on fixed incomes, how they are. And I mean, I made really specific efforts to reduce my use before Christmas. We had a mild winter. And, you know, anyway, just to look at where people are at at the moment, just to give a sense of cost of living. So we've had five successive ECB interest rate hikes. Okay, so that's impacting on mortgage holders. Groceries are climbing. There's an article in the Sunday Inter today about 16, between 13 and yeah, 16%. And uh, like butter and milk are two that like real have basics. really gone, gone real, up with all proportion. Real yeah. basics. So if you're on a, a there's about like in, I'm very involved in with food poverty in the Midwest region and I mean there are 7,000 people using the Midwest Food Bank that's there at the moment which is something when I first started in doing the kind of work I'm doing and when I started doing research on, on the ground in Limerick food banks didn't exist it didn't mean people weren't poor but the kind of phenomenon one of the interesting things and you'll see it in a number of the papers today is you know MAB referring like working people to, to, food, to food banks, banks yeah. and and you know this is something that I think we really the, the low waged in particular those who are on fixed incomes about 16% of, 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 of people on the poverty line are, are working and, and it's it's just there's a lot of pain out there at the moment and I think that's something that we need to factor into these bigger conversations about you know everything yeah. that's going on socially is okay. the pain that people are feeling on this cost of living issue. Cormac, um, as a person who keeps an eye on economics and everything, there's been a sense in the it's since the new year really that we might have dodged a bullet here on that we might be dodging a bullet on inflation that it could have peaked that we might have dodged a bullet on recession that it might not quite happen or be very mild. Are, are, are you optimistic about the people's cost of living outlook for the year ahead? I am. I, I, I believe inflation is set to fall quite sharply over the course of this this year. However, having said that, I, I printed out a graph coming in here. It, we, we have the highest price level in Ireland across the entire European yeah. Union. Uh, in 2021, the last year for which data is available, uh, our costs were 44% above the EU average. Uh, so we, we have a we have a systematic problem that we're, we're heading into this crisis with being aggravated by the inflationary effects of the crisis. And this is, this is why you know, people are retiring to, to Portugal and Spain. You know, they're, they're cost, you, you will significantly save on costs if you have an Irish pension and you're experiencing cost levels of some other country in the EU. So, that, so I, think that, that, you know, this is, I think this is another problem in, in the multi-crisis of the state, which is not even to recognise that there is an, an ongoing cost of living crisis to begin with and not addressing that, not discussing it and not trying to do something about it. OK, Orla? Yeah, I mean, speaking of bills, like um, you brought it up, I know when we got our bill right before Christmas, like our, our normal electricity would be, bill would be about 200 euro, it was 450 euro, mm. it, it had doubled. And again, we were making a conscious effort mm. to, to reduce mm. that. So I think it's it's very worrying. You talk about ECB rates, I, I'm renting, I don't have a mortgage, I would like to have a mortgage at some point, but I feel like the possibility of me owning a home is 
non-existent it's a pipe dream and I, I don't see that changing anytime soon so you know it's 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 worrying as a as a younger person these kind of things but like that I, you know there there are so many crises going on right now but I feel you're right they're, they're using things like this you know your bills are higher your rent is high you don't have a mortgage there's a housing crisis all of these things of well yeah now isn't isn't this the fault of refugees or are they making it worse mm. and I feel like that's very misdirected and um, there's an interview with um, Michael D Higgins in the Cindo with Ali Bracken and he he speaks yeah, to okay, this right, kind of thing go yeah back to that like yeah in, in terms of cost of living, what you say about yourself, would that be true of uh, most of your peers as well that you know? I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah. most of my friends would be renting. Um, they'd be in, you know, quite expensive rental situations. And I know a few people, in fairness, who have bought houses over the last couple of years. But after years of looking and generally, they were able to move back in with a parent for a couple of years or things like that. It wasn't that they were able to rent and save and do that. Um, I'm from Sligo originally. I can't really move back home. So I can't. I don't have that option of moving back in with my mum to save money to, you know, buy it you know get a deposit to buy a house so I feel like there's a lot of people in my situation where it's just a pipe dream you know I'm you know I'm, I'm in a good job I have a salary but you know it, it just seems like an impossible dream for me right now for anything like that. John that's the story you hear from like pretty much anyone who comes in here who's under the age of, not even 30 who's under the age of 40 a lot of them professionals with what used to be regarded as good jobs should be able to kind of, you know, buy into that social contract, okay. a dream I, uh, of progressing a life. If, and you, if you listen to Mabs and you listen to uh, Social Justice Ireland, who I have great time for, and they're very good. They get economic, do a good economic analysis. They bring in experts and so on. And they've said something like Cormac has said. You could come along in the morning and say, well, they're saying that we shouldn't be giving one-off payments. We should be pr- prioritising people on low incomes and social welfare payments, which would mean you'd have to probably give about €30 Euro a week increase. The government are not going to do that. You know that and I know that. The difficulty with it is, and social justice are correct again, that we haven't been able to deal with the kind of rip-off cost of living that Cormac has been speaking about. That in the morning, if the government come along and say, we're going to give everybody in social welfare to balance that 16.8% that grew Years ago. We'll give you 16.8% in your thing and all of a sudden then you see the petrol prices going up again uh, if you want to go to a hotel going up again and th- we haven't questioned and I as a politician are pro- possibly partly responsible for the time I've spent in government but you're not given the opportunity to, to be legislators instead you're trying to fix bloody people's houses and do stuff like that Do you think that so? W- do, 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 is, the, is the fundamental way uh, the life of and working life of a politician designed is Politicians politicians should be legislators we're way behind on bringing in legislation most other countries for instance Were you caught up in kind of clientelistic just, local business you, all the time? It's yeah? just ridiculous you'd go home maybe on a Thursday and, and from Friday morning up to about 10 o'clock in the night and we were in your office where we're my secretaries were quite confident for dealing with so, no we want to see John and so doing, doing the stuff that the Citizens Advice it, Bureau it, should it's be doing it's very interesting when Mick Wallace has been interviewed he was do, he was on the, when I was standing in the last election and Mick Wallace was standing it's very good RT were with him and someone said to a, a girl came up and said Mick I have a problem but my medical card I don't do medical cards he said I don't do housing issues, I do legislation. Most other countries do that, we don't do that. And if you, if you said, if I said in the morning I was standing, listen lads, I'm going, to, I'm going to be a legislator in the doll. I'm going to try and work through bills and do what's right for the country, what's right for people in the country. This, I ain't going to handle who's not going to he's look not going after to get, the But area. to come back okay. to the point right. that Cormac right. was saying is yeah. that unless we... We look need at to the cost base of things. The cost the base of things, yeah. yes. Okay, okay. Um, moving on, uh, Orla, the other big story uh, that's dominated the discourse in the last week is the nursing home charges story that the Mail had last week. So you picked out uh, in the business post, it's on the front page and it's inside as well, the state's strategy on nursing home charges is the rule, not the exception. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting op-ed from Conor O'Mahony who's basically saying... Um, and just tell us who Conor O'Mahony is there, it says at the end. Yes, of yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah, so he, uh, he's um, uh, the dean, uh, the deputy dean at the School of Law in UCC and he's the former child protection rapporteur yeah. um, on behalf of the government. So he's well, he's well versed in this and he knows what he's talking about. He was kind of saying, yes, there was a lot of shock, but he was almost surprised at the level of shock because, you know, people working in, in the legal industry have known this for years. This has always been the state's modus operandi, basically saying, you know, they want to send a message to people. If you come for the state, you better not miss. And even if you succeed, you'll spend years dealing with the courts and appeals and things like that. So, you know, they've always done this where they said, right, if you have enough money to take us on and the might of the state and the lawyers of the state, then you might get your money back. But what they've done, you know, with the nursing home stuff and other cases, they've kind of said, we let it drag on as long as possible. And then mm. when it gets to the stage of discovery, sharing documents that would back up, you know, the person's point, they say, right, well, we pay you off now. But at the very last stage, so it doesn't get to court, so there's not a precedent. 
been Indeed. set by a judge. Garrett Noble of KOD Line Solicitors suggests uh, in the, in the bigger piece inside, he says that you you people are offered more often than they would actually get in court in order to settle mm-hmm. and sign an NDA. Exactly. Whereas normally uh, people would know that if you settle, you get less than you might ultimately get in court because they don't um, want a precedent set that other people can yeah. use. So then other people have to go through the legal the, the litigious process as well, spend a lot of money, potentially lose their case, and take on the state's cases, state's fees as well. So obviously they know the vast majority of people can't afford to do that. Uh, Cormac, you picked this uh, as well. And look, the argument that's been going on this week is that on one hand, the state's job and the job of the lawyers of the state is to protect the state finances. And on the other hand, people like Ivana Batchik and that saying, well, maybe that's not the approach the state should be taking. If it's if, if it hasn't upheld people's rights, then it should make that right. I think that's the fundamental question. Uh, I think in the past, it would appear very clearly that lawyers uh, acting for the state have been acting to minimise the payout of the state. So they've been acting as if they're representing a commercial client, a profit-maximising client, whereas in fact they're representing the body that is supposed to represent all of us as citizens and which, uh, in my opinion, ought to be acting on a a fair citizen basis. Uh, So if you make a fair claim rather than trying to just drag you into the paperwork and drag you into delays and drag you into process costs and and suck the will to live out of your soul, they should be admitting liability if there is a liability. To the tarnished point that how far do we go with reparations for the sins of the past when we have so many pressing demands on but surely, Brendan, services, etc. right now. Because I actually agree with the Tonisha to a certain extent about the focus on redress. For me, the issue is that there's like a loop on this one that we keep coming back every couple of years to another one of these scandals. And the question is, what constructively can we do to stop it happening again once all the, you know, self-berating has, has ended? And I think I think it's Ivana Batchik's suggestion that the office of the AG would be changed or reformed so that you would have to include common good or common interest as part of the legal infrastructure because as Cormac says lawyers are lawyers they're designed to and they are behaving like lawyers They and they think and this is I think the point Conor O'Mahony makes really well they think they're doing the right thing <laughs> but in many cases the only winners long term out of are the lawyers themselves and so there has to be rather than the focus being on redress there has to be a, a, a structural change to how the civil service engages with the legal profession. Oh, Conor O'Mahony famously said last year and this is specific to mother and baby homes and redress related to that he said, if you don't want to pay people for violating their human rights, don't violate their human rights. And during a debate uh, in the Dáil during the week, Sean Sherlock was about mother and baby home redress. He said, we're doing the same thing again. They've been warned because 40% of survivors are excluded from that particular scheme. There will be future legal cases. And Sean Sherlock said, mark my words, this will come back to haunt the government. There are will those be future 40% legal cases. the people who spent less than six months? A, a lot of them will be that cohort. People who spent less than six months as a child in an institution are not entitled to anything. And a number of them are going to take legal action about uh, against the state. So they're kind of saying, yeah, we're, we're quote unquote saving money right now, but there will be future legal cases. So again, they're pursuing that same thing with the nursing homes, with, you know, disability payments, all of that. It's like, if you can afford to take us on legally, you might get your money back. Otherwise, take it or leave it. That's what you get. Okay. Yeah, I think the, the Attorney General has to look at the 1970 Health Act. That left it open for all people that were eligible to get free care in homes. We must remember that. That was passed in the Dáil. Where that changed was from 1976 to 2005, where the government said they tried to have it retrospectively during those years that you should have paid. Uh, Mary McAleese, as far as I can remember, rejected yeah, that. No, and there, said, there, yeah, but, she's, there, but, the, but the point is, you were asking earlier on, where do we go back to? We go back to 1976 to 2005. That's where people uh, were made pay and shouldn't have paid under that Health Act because the government had brought in t- something in 2005 that after 30 days, you then had to pay but nobody was told anything about that. And so those people that were caught between 1976 and 2005, who were legally, legally under a doll bill that was passed and uh, thoroughly and now, debated. Look, and, and look, the, the Taoiseach has made it very clear that he, he feels the state was, it was good practice and that they are on legal, a sound legal footing uh, for people who went into private nursing homes not to have to not to have to pay out to all those people but we will see what the report from the okay. uh, from the AG says next week I guess um Neva a small bit of politics there to do we ever think politics would be and on a lighter note yeah. um just briefly uh tell us what Shane Ross is saying there in the so, Sunday Independent. Shane Ross is a very interesting piece it's not 
words I often say, on the rural urban divide. And I suppose he's particularly focusing on the promotion of junior ministers recently and the way in which it's focused very much on urban and particularly on Dublin TDs. And I suppose for me, this is interesting because I personally feel a lot of the knife edge on which this particular government is resting, given the numbers, it really squares on those rural urban issues. If I was going to we have power, the, I'd say it'll be a rural issue really, that will take this we, government we, yeah, down. We yeah, we haven't had that much talk about the urban-rural divide really recently. Well, it's, like it's bubbling yeah, away the, there. The, the, the climate piece has kind of died back, I suppose, because of everything else that's going on. But I think it's there. And between the independents, which have a very strong rural focus, particularly, obviously, with the Healy Rays, and also with uh, the rural rump in both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who are very vo- feeling very vulnerable at the moment, I think this is a space to watch for the political pundits in the next 12 I months. I think Shane will have to stand again. <laughs> well, we could, we could do it him now with Minister for Transport. We'll Back in bed. Okay, I think yep. Shane himself in that piece is admitting that he was. Uh, I, I think pompous is one word he uses about himself as a minister. Anyway, well, he's pretty um, straightforward. Um, Orla, the Mail on Sunday, John Drennan's story. Give us back our thirteen skulls. It sounds like a Martin McDonough play or something. It's not far off. It really. Uh, this is a story that's been rumbling on for years, really, but it kind of came back into the public. Has it? Yeah, I've it has. never heard you of this before. Oh no. well, yeah, it pops up every now and then. And then about a year ago, the Guardian ran a story on it, so it got some international attention. But uh, long story short, um, thirteen skulls were taken from a graveyard um, on Inishbofin in about eighteen ninety, and they were given to Trinity College um, to, to you know for for research and scientific purposes okay. but they were stolen from the graveyard and this has been widely known for a long time so there's been a back and forth between people on the island you know literally everyone who can sign on the island has said we want the skulls back they should be you know reburied reinterred properly in a respectful manner uh, Trinity College is you know liaising with them and talking about it but they haven't to date given them back so the latest intervention is that um, Eamon O'Queeve the TD has written to Catherine Martin the minister and said you should intervene and make sure Trinity College gives the skulls back Catherine Martin on her behalf she's kind of said well it's actually doesn't fall under the remit of my department that so would be an ecumenical matter it would be definitely an ecumenical okay. matter so basically uh, a petition by 170 islanders has demanded the return of the skulls it was sent to trinity last year and since then there's been a back and forth there are negotiations ongoing about a way to rectify the matter trinity has kind of said they want to find a solution that's you know satisfying to everyone so they haven't quite said they'll give them back but they're in talks with islanders as what's the best thing to do with these skulls okay so the elegant marbles of of uh, in, in often. Uh, before we finish up, Cormac, there was a story you wanted to mention briefly, uh, which is probably a, one of those little illustrative things about we've, we've been talking about how bad everything is. The Business Post page 13, nearly half of DA security staff hired in the last year have since left. So half of the security people at Dublin Airport has recruited have left in the last uh, And you think months. a good thing? A good well, sign? I, I, it's, it, it's signifying a very strong labour market. That, that people, uh, workers can pick and choose. Uh, now, we were describing work difficulties of refugees. This is in, in the Dublin area, certainly, and, and I'm sure in Cork as well and Limerick, they're very strong job markets. And that's good for employees, good for people looking to sw- switch jobs, as clearly a lot of people have done at Dublin Airport. But not yeah. necessarily good if you're trying to get through security in Dublin uh, Airport. In Dublin Airport, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah but look, on the other hand, let's leave things on a positive note that as bad as everything is, we do not have an unemployment problem at, no. at, at the moment and we all know that that makes things 20 times worse. OK, thank you very much. Orla Ryan, news correspondent for, with the Journal.ie, John Halligan, former independent TD for Waterford, Professor Neve Horrigan, sociologist and Cormac Lucy, columnist with the Sunday Times,